the joy that we each feel to be able to come together this evening, the characteristics of some of what we see in the world about us, I hope only helps each of us appreciate the blessing that we have together in the quietness and the solitude of this hour to focus on the things of eternal truth and to allow that to aid us to be stronger in the days and this week that's now in front of us. After all, the world offers so many things that would tend to make one despair and to make one be so discouraged and rather the scriptures and the ability to appreciate the blessings of God only encourage us and lift us higher and to live more nobly and more pleasingly unto our God in heaven. We have been now for several weeks, in fact, through the bulk of the summer, giving our attention on Sunday evenings to the book of John. After all, our youngsters are involved in a study of that book, as Jeff and the other teachers are leading them in that regard. They have studied so many things, and as I understand it, are nearing the close of the first go-through of that book. And so we, too, are advancing rather significantly also toward the end. In this 11th session or 11th installment tonight, we come to the 15th and 16th chapters, so I hope you'll take your Bible and turn to those chapters with me because we'll be drawing several lessons from the context of those two chapters tonight. The Bible Bowl, as it encourages to turn our attention to a certain book of the Bible and to give some detailed study of it, is certainly a worthwhile thing. Any study that we do, focusing the efforts on what God has to say, rather than our thoughts or our opinions is certainly a worthwhile matter, and I trust that our study of the book of John has also been so. We noticed in our study, for example, some of the attributes of the nature of Jesus. After all, in John 3:17, didn't he there say that he came, in fact, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved? In John 4.34, he said that my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. In John 6.38, we learn something else that he said. I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. All the while, didn't Jesus lift the eyes of the human family above the mundane world about them to appreciate the splendor of what does await for those who are the faithful? And as he set forth the will of his heavenly Father, he reminds us still of how needful it is to pursue the will of God in our lives. In fact, in that majestic statement of John 12, 32, he said, If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. He was shortly to be lifted up, after all, from the time we're studying now. He would be lifted up, suspended on a cross between heaven and earth. And in that suspension, he would in fact urge draw all men unto him. Sadly, all will not come, but the invitation is extended. In John 13, verses 31 and 32, he stated the necessity of glorifying God, and that was his desire. Should that not be our interest as well? For he still is the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, verse 6. Those introductory thoughts only whet our appetite for some of the other things our Savior has stated, not only about His work, but about what it involves in terms of our service to God. With those things stated, tonight let us turn our attention to chapter 15, verse 1, through chapter 16, verse 33. The context of those two chapters and seek to simply draw a few of the many lessons that might be drawn from those chapters and seek to apply them to our lives. 
With that stated, might I ask you to notice in general just a few of the things about the text that we should strive to keep in mind. What might be said about these two chapters? As we noted near the beginning of the study of John, John, more so than the other gospel accounts, though certainly the others do too, but John especially emphasizes the very last several hours of the Lord's life in the flesh. Starting from chapter 13 all the way to the end of the book, John gives us, again in those chapters, which comprise a significant fraction of his book, some detailed information about the last hours of the Lord's life in the flesh. It's almost as if John wished to take a microscope and to expand greatly the information that took place in the last hours of the Lord's life. After all, wouldn't it be the case that given that Jesus knew the cross was shortly in his future, knowing the agony and the anguish that was to come his way, knowing what those apostles were going to endure in the days ahead, that after all would be the time to share with them the most pressing matters that they needed to remember and the most careful information that would assist them in being faithful and aiding the church to become strong. Thus, in these waning hours of the Lord's life in the flesh, his mind no doubt was greatly agitated given the agony that he would experience, but he shared with them some things that we have been studying of late and will continue to study tonight. As one turns then to John chapter 15, we notice that these things were said by Jesus on Thursday night of that week of the crucifixion. The Lord had entered Jerusalem riding on that donkey on Sunday. We would recognize that as that first day of the week, of course. It would take much greater significance, though, following his resurrection. We've now advanced till Thursday. On that evening, the Passover was celebrated. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on that occasion. Now, we have advanced well beyond the 6 o'clock hour. It's probably somewhere between 9 and 10 p.m. on Thursday evening. Jesus and those apostles, after instituting the supper, they either were about to or were already en route to the Garden of Gethsemane. There, of course, in just a couple of hours, the Lord will be arrested. And in that character of his arrest, the remaining events of the early morning hours, even until the next Friday morning, would in fact be extremely overwhelming. However, before we quite get to that, Let's look at some of the things Jesus said late that Thursday evening. These matters in chapters 14, 15, and 16. As we find ourselves in the heart of chapter 15, first to 9, the Lord began that with a very touching statement. I am the vine, he would say, and my father is the husbandman. Isn't it interesting that in this very telling and yet very profound way, Jesus explained a matter of relationship. I play the role of the vine. You, he said, are the branches. My father is the husbandman. That is to say, God, the father, is the vine dresser. In the concourse of those first ten verses of that chapter, Jesus thus explained matters that you and I find somewhat easy to appreciate and those which we also will return and discuss later in the lesson this evening. Following that matter, Jesus quickly spoke about love. He had raised that matter in chapter 13. In fact, asserting to them that by this shall all men know you are my disciples if ye have loved one for another. John 13, verses 34 and 35. 
he now revisits it and does so in this fashion. Verse number 12 of John 15, he said, You are to love one another as I have loved you. They certainly the next morning would understand more clearly the depth of that love when they saw him hanging on a cross. And in the coming days when the Holy Spirit would come upon them, they would then understand more thoroughly the degree of that love that he had died for them. I'm sure as they often reflected then upon this, you love each other as I have loved you. That would take on an entire new meaning for them. And it may be that matter that prompts the Apostle John, the Apostle of Love, to pen the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that so clearly address the topic of love and that raise it to our attention still this day. Following his discussion of love, again in verses 11 and following of John 15, the Savior quickly issued some stern warnings to them. Isn't it interesting that the Lord could move from one breath to discussing love and the next one to discuss warnings? It's because you and I also are in need of the same pieces of information. He warned them, the world will hate you, but don't be alarmed, it hated me first. Today, we still need to be aware the world will hate us if we cling tenaciously to what Jesus has revealed. Isn't it interesting, the Lord asserted again, don't be afraid and don't be alarmed. The world has hated me before it hated you. May we understand the necessity in verse 19 of John 15 of seeing that same message. That very verse reads it as follows. John 15, verse number 19. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. We still live in such a position that we have been called out of the world. We are not of the world, though we, of course, are forced to live in it. Our mission, our directive, our purpose, our goals are not of this world. Maybe that same phrase will also be, of course, greatly appreciated when we look at chapter 17 and again in chapter 18 when the Lord said, My kingdom is not of this world. As we've studied previously, the Lord's kingdom is the church, and hence because we are Christians and a part of that church, thus we are not of this world in the sense that though we live in it, our primary mission and primary purpose is not of it. As the Lord had issued to them that set of warnings, He even issued in chapter 16, verse 2, the following matter. Amazingly, He made this statement to them. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. Jesus warned them that the time is coming in your lives, he said, when those who kill you will think that they, in fact, are doing service unto God. There was to be a great apostasy and persecution that would flood the latter part of that first century. And many who, in fact, in the overrunning destruction of Jerusalem would think that they were serving God by putting Christians to death. Nero and other Roman emperors did that. Even the apostles Paul's head was struck from his body under the persecution of Nero. They thought they were doing service to God. Might we remember the Lord had stated matters like this would come to pass. After that opening statement of chapter 16, we quickly are thus brought to appreciate 
some of the next things that Jesus told these that very night. He told them about the work of the Holy Spirit. He, in fact, directed much of the 16th chapter to telling them that there's a comforter coming. When I depart, and it's expedient that I do so, I will send a comforter to you. And he identified that comforter as the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, who, in fact, will lead and guide you into all truth. That surely must have been a great comfort to those disciples that night. Again, the next morning, they would see their Savior hanging on a cross. Their leader, the very one who had led them for over three years, would now be on a cross. But in the coming days, they'd remember, a comforter is coming. I have promised a helper to be with you and to guide you and to assist you. Thankfully, we can see how lovely, in a lovely way, they used that comforter. For he did guide and he did lead. And he prompted them to display the greatness of that truth. For in John 16, 13, the very text that Jeremy read earlier tonight, he said, How be it when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he shall guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but that which he shall hear, that shall he speak. That Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Helper, if you please, would distribute to them and reveal to them all truth. Thankfully, we can notice the further episodes of that chapter in which Jesus stated in verse 16, A little while and you'll not see me. You see, he was soon to leave them. As he left them, and as they would not be able to see him, We'll have to investigate later in the lesson what exactly did the Lord mean by that because he did close the chapter verse 33 by saying, My peace I leave with you. I have overcome the world. The world brings you tribulation, but I bring you peace. And today we still can enjoy the peace of God that passes all understanding, Philippians 4, 7. And that peace that the Apostle Paul knew. I mentioned earlier that his head was struck from his body. The very last chapter the Apostle Paul ever wrote was 2 Timothy chapter 4. And yet, in the concourse of that chapter, it still brims over with faith and assurance and encouragement. For Paul could say, in the very nature of verses 16 through 18 of that chapter, he said, No man stood with me, but the Lord stood with me and sustained me. And notice, Paul, even in that dark hour of his life, could appreciate that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, Philippians 1.21. That marvelous matter then leads us to notice that after at least touching some of the static points that have been seen, what might be some lessons that you and I could draw from this that can help us today? As we look at these lessons to follow, let's take them again one in, a, in order and let's revisit the first which I've entitled Abide in Christ. We began the lesson tonight by looking at that vine when Jesus said, I am the vine, my father is the husbandman, ye are the branches. John 15 verses 1 and 4. As we look at the, some, one of the lessons that the Lord meant for us to take from that, almost certainly this is the principal one because he mentions it at least three times in the course of those eight verses. Might I ask you to note with me as we read verse number 4. John 15, verse number 4. Abide in me, and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. It is amazing how often that word abide is used by the Savior during the discussion of this vine and the branches. Abide in me, he said, and I in you. I've asked you to think of it from this perspective. Being in this part of the world, we're rather familiar with the way that, say, beans grow in a garden. Or the way that, say, a morning glory vine is able to grow up a stick or up a tree or up some other kind of trellis or thing in your backyard or mine. As you picture a vine, what happens if upon a vine you tear off the branch or the tendril or the sprout that would grow out from it? We all know what takes place. The vine is able to remain with strength. But when you and I sever or break that tendril or the branch that's from it, all that's on the branch will die. All that is on the branch, its leaves, any kind of berries or fruit that's on it, will from that moment onward begin to die. Could it well be that that idea is able to sit so strongly in our mind? Jesus said, verses 2 and 3, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you're clean through the word that I have spoken unto you. Then verse 5, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him the same, bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Note the word withered. Just as surely as that severed tendril or branch withers away and is no more good for anything, so too if you and I are not connected to the Christ, if we do not abide in Him, we too will wither up spiritually and die. Notice again, Jesus is divine providing all the nourishment, the sustenance, and the provision to all the tendrils and branches. Any tendril or branch that doesn't abide in him will wither up and die. That again asserts to us the necessity of abiding in him, endeavoring, belaboring, and asserting the important fact of always remaining in Christ. Just as surely as Jesus is divine, you and I are described as the branches. We individually, not collectively, but individually is the message. Because notice he likens it in verse number 6, if a man abide not in me, and that's singular. He isn't talking about collective activity. It's Randy in each of you individually. We each must abide in him. And in so doing, we can remain in contact with the source of spiritual strength, the source of spiritual nourishment. If we abide not in him, we will wither and die. Notice how strongly that encourages us to be steadfast. Just becoming in him once, that's a wonderful start, but we must continue to abide in him. The verbs that Jesus used are present tense, active voice. He says in verse 4, abide in me. He didn't say you should have in the past abided in me. It's continuous day-by-day day action, abiding in the Savior. That thought reminds us, doesn't it, of the steadfastness proclaimed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. 
He said on that occasion, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And I have asked us to consider that text in 1 John 2 verse 24. Three verbs appear in that verse. As John, that apostle of love, assists and asserts the nature of abiding in Jesus, here are the three verbs, abide, remain, and continue. All three are in present tense voice. All three impress upon us the need to ever remain daily in Christ. One of the Apostle Paul's favorite expressions in all the New Testament is, in Christ, in Him, in Christ Jesus, in the Lord. Notice that as he wrote to the Ephesians, he said, all spiritual blessings are where? In Christ. You and I thus need to be in Him. If we thus ever, in the tenderness of our heart, find ourselves not in Him, may we at once seek to do those things necessary to obtain the forgiveness of those sins so that we can again be faithfully in Him. But what about yet a second lesson? Note the way in which the branches were dealt with in this statement by Jesus. Verse number 2 highlights that thought. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. We each appreciate, I think, that there are some interesting thoughts in that verse. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit. We've already learned that the branches represent you and me individually. It does say, in me. Thus, you and I, being Christians, are branches in Him. But now the point. What if you and I fail to bring forth fruit unto God? He says in verse 2, He taketh it away. That branch is removed. It's taken away. It is not accomplishing the thing that God intends it to do. We each know in a garden you plant a bean seed. It's a rather sad thing when the bean plant grows, but it doesn't bear any beans. It's nothing but a bunch of vines. That doesn't accomplish the thing that, that it needs to accomplish. You and I may well pull it up or plow it up and plant some more, mightn't we? Here the Lord said, Every branch in me that bringeth not forth fruit, he taketh away. That means that God will not direct toward you and me the blessings he otherwise would so that we could continue to bring forth fruit because we aren't bearing any fruit. That's only highlighted when we look at how the verse continues. What happens to those branches that do bear fruit? It says, Every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it. Now that word purgeth, at least in the Greek, is a bit interesting. And I've tried to write it in that fashion. It means to prune. Just like you would take a bush and prune it, or take away that of it which is not the best part. Notice that those that bear fruit are pruned. That helps us see some of what we studied last Wednesday night in the Bible study. Notice that trials and oppressions and afflictions, despite the fact we're Christians, they come our way. Why? Paul said in Romans 5 verse 3, they lead to patience, they lead to approvedness, and they lead to hope. Thus God may well test our faith by allowing things to come upon us that once we've endured it will make us bring forth more fruit to him. 
think about the man Job in the Old Testament. Here was a man who was faithful already. But yet notice that God allowed Satan to bring upon him the great catastrophes that he suffered. Losing his family, losing his possessions, losing the other things that he had obtained. But in the aftermath of it all, we notice that Job in the continuance of his livelihood was blessed again by God. And as he had endured those difficulties, he was an even stronger individual than before. We are told in the New Testament that we too may well as a result of oppression and difficulties actually emerge due to our reliance upon God even stronger than we were at the beginning. We notice here, he purgeth it. May we each thus see in this the impressive necessity of bearing fruit. If we aren't bearing fruit, he'll take us away. If we are bearing fruit, we will be pruned and purged, and that will allow us to be an even more productive servant of the Master. What about you and I? Are we bearing fruit? Ask us each of that individually. Randy, are you bearing fruit? And you can put your name in that sentence as well. Verse number 8 of this same chapter reads, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. Romans 7, verses 3 and 4, Paul said, You and I are married to Christ that we should bring forth fruit unto God. The reason that you and I are Christians, at least one reason, Paul said, is because you and I can now bear fruit for God. Are we bringing forth that fruit to Him? Due to the fact we each have been blessed by God with differing talents and skills and abilities, we each can use them in a way to bring fruit to God. Are we using them? Am I doing what I can do to bring forth fruit to the kingdom of God? That's a penetrating question, isn't it? And this lesson asks that question of us. What about a third lesson? Another one that we can also see in the nature of these two chapters. What about that hatred of the world? We mentioned that earlier in verses 18 and 19 of John chapter 15. It is a safe statement to make that the world hates those that are different from it. The world likes conformity. The world preaches conformity. It wants all to be like it is. Anything or anyone that's different is lifted up to insult and ridicule, perhaps even harm in some other form or fashion. Can you remember back in the days of school? Probably in high school, you remember there was a crowd. A crowd probably it was rather mean. It was a crowd that did not approach things in the way that was good. A rather rabble-rousing kind of crowd. They wanted others to be like them. Anyone that was a goody-two-shoes was insulted by them, made fun of by them, perhaps even brought to tears on occasion by them because they wouldn't participate in what they were doing and would not endorse it either. The world, you see, likes conformity. doesn't want any differences. You approve what I approve, and you want to do what I like to do. That's, after all, what makes things like smoking so often that which comes into the life of those young people. This bully or this set of people, you try this. Are you chicken? Why won't you do it? Are you mama's boy? And by that matter of peer pressure, they bring this matter into the life of this person. Be it that, be it drugs, be it other kind of behavior. 
Notice the world doesn't like those that proclaim that it's different. That doesn't change throughout life, does it? Even we who are older still find the pressures of those about us who follow the ways of the world to also march in step with it. Notice here Jesus said, Don't you be so shocked and don't you be surprised. If you follow me, the world is going to hate you. And it hated me first. No wonder, again, this same apostle, the apostle John, later in 1 John 3.13 said, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. That's just going to be the way that it is. Thus, we're going to be persecuted. People are not going to approve the, pers the perspective and the position that we take. That approval, in fact, that matter, leads us to 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. There Paul said, Yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We ought to, I think, when that persecution comes, allow our mind to race back to this text. Jesus said, don't be alarmed and don't be shocked. The world hates you because you're not of it. We should expect the world will not approve the approach that we take. Rather, you see, than conforming to the world, the Bible teaches us to be transformed from it. Don't you enjoy that statement of Romans 12, beginning in verse 1? Paul said, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye be not conformed to the world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may approve what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Again, he said, rather than being conformed to the world, allow yourself to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To what end, Paul? that you may approve what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God's will, you see, stands opposed to what Satan's desire in the world is. Can we not remember, for instance, Lot in the Old Testament? Lot had a wonderful gentleman in his family. His name was Abram. It was, of course, his uncle. But we well remember that there came a time when due to the blessing of God that they parted company for the land wasn't able to sustain both of them. Genesis chapter 13. Lot chose the well-watered plains of the Jordan River Valley. Whereas Abram, of course, moved in the opposite direction. One of the regions, however, that was near to where Lot began to pitch his tent was Sodom. Notice, though, that in chapter 13 he pitched his tent toward it by the time we get to chapter 18, he was living in it. Notice, rather than being that pristine example of loveliness and one who was able to encourage his family in the way of rightness, his daughters married sinful people who were destroyed when God rained fire and brimstone on that wicked city. You see, even Lot's wife became a pillar of salt when she turned back and looked upon it in the leaving of that place. Might we well remember that the world gradually will overtake us if we aren't careful. We need to ever be vigilant and mindful of the fact that we must not conform to it. Don't bend our will to be like it. We assert the example of Christ through ourselves in difference to it. The hatred of the world is that which still is apparent today. Christians will be persecuted, reviled, insulted, made fun of, and quite often punished in other ways. But Jesus said the world is going to do that. 
That leads us to verse 33 of chapter 16 when there Jesus said, The world will bring tribulation to you, but I will bring you peace. The world doesn't offer peace. It only offers tribulation and worry and anxiety. That which divides the mind and brings us lower than what we would like to be. Maybe in the fourth place, in the 16th chapter, we see yet another lesson. This one about the Holy Spirit. Verse 13. In that place, Jesus said, How be it when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. Let's lay a bit of emphasis upon the all truth part of that verse. It is interesting to notice that the Lord, actually it's in the Greek, said that this is all of the truth. There might be those to wonder, but the Lord hadn't died yet. He hadn't been resurrected at the time He made that statement. He hadn't ascended to the Father at the time that statement was made. Did He really mean that the complete totality of truth would be shared forth and revealed to those apostles? Or did He only mean the truth for a limited time? It is the former. He said all, not some of it, not a part of it, not most of it. He said all of it. How be it when He, the Spirit of truth, has come? Really all that then means is we need to ask if we can ascertain when the Holy Spirit came upon those apostles, we will know fully and finally when the totality of all the truth was delivered to them. Thankfully, the book of Acts reveals that to us, doesn't it? In Acts, the second chapter, the opening four verses tell us, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And we notice that in the sense of that Holy Spirit coming upon them, that's exactly what verses 3 and 4 tell us. The Spirit had come. It guided them into all truth. When thus Peter and the others preached on that day of Pentecost, the entirety of God's truth was known by them and was properly and correctly revealed by them as well. As we appreciate the nature of that truth, doesn't it in fact lead us to have great confidence in this book? It is the sum total of all truth. There is no other. It is not short of it. It is not too much. It is not to the left or to the right. This is the full sum total of all of God's revealed truth. John 16 verse 13, thus should often be considered by us as we appreciate just what the Bible is. For 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17, still read it this way. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. This book equips one satisfactorily to accomplish all good works in the name of God. With those thoughts in mind, perhaps the last lesson of the evening, the one that takes us to the little while of John 16, verse 16. What is it the Lord meant by that statement? John 16, verse number 16 reads, A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. Jesus was speaking of a resurrection, 
And as he spoke about his own resurrection, that is able to allow him to refer to the great joy that they were able to have and also the joy that you and I can know as we also think about a resurrection. The little while you and I can identify because of the following observation. One of the things that makes that verse a bit challenging in the King James translation is that the very last part of it is actually not present in Greek. The part that reads, because I go to the Father, is not present in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts. And thus the verse would read without that as follows. A little while and ye shall not see me. And again a little while and ye shall see me. And the verse ends at that point. We notice what the little while is. As that chapter identifies it, it is that period of time between the Lord's death and his resurrection. That period of time between, again, he was put to death and he was in the tomb. Come that Lord's Day morning, the Sunday morning, the tomb was found empty. That's the little while that they didn't see him. That's the little while when they were unable to see him with, their, with simply their eyes. But then you notice a little while and he was able to be with them again in the resurrection appearances, when he appeared to them and showed them the great things. In fact, to Thomas, later in this book, he'll say, Thomas, put your finger into my hand and into my side. They had great joy, Matthew 28 tells us. When they recognized the resurrected Lord, their hearts were lifted high because of the joy. What he had preached was true. He was the Son of God and they knew it. Can you and I not also be greatly encouraged by the resurrection? The fact that the grave is not the end. When you and I attend a funeral home of a departed Christian, one who has lived his life or her life in faith, we can have the hope. Certainly it isn't the end, we know that already. But just like Lazarus found himself in Abraham's bosom in a place of peacefulness and bliss and joy, we too can have great confidence in the resurrection. The little while helps us see then as that section closes what we can remember from 1 Corinthians 15 verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ Jesus, we are of all men most miserable. Our faith needs to be a diligent, dedicated one that will carry us far beyond the grave. If Christ is only our hope here in life, we have to be described as miserable, as pitiful, as those who truly are in a state of pitiableness. Tonight, as we draw our lesson to its conclusion, and we think about some of the lessons that we've learned, we've been reminded that these final words in the hours of the life of the Lord in the flesh were so penetrating, so memorable, and we've only taken five brief lessons from them. But those five were of the following form. The need for you and me to abide in, in Jesus. The need to ever keep in mind how the Lord deals with the branches on the vine. The fact that we will be hated of the world. The great truth stated in our fourth one, that that truth is that which we should be guided in by the revelation of the Spirit. And finally, in our last one, to ever keep in the forefront of our mind the joy of the resurrection. Tonight, if you aren't a Christian, why let that state of affairs continue like that? The Lord died for you. He paid the price for your sins. Don't neglect or ignore that offering on His part for you. Come lovingly to Him and allow Him to wash your sins away. 
that happens as you render obedience to the gospel call of invitation. That call takes this form. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess the sweet name of Jesus as the Son of God and be baptized for the remission of sins. We could assist you in that tonight if that's the need of your life. If you have at some point rendered obedience to Him, but you have for some reason, perhaps several reasons, which really are but excuses, but you've allowed yourself to not be faithful. You are not abiding in Him tonight. You need to make sure that by the time you leave, you are again abiding in Him. Brethren would be happy to pray with you and for you if their sins have been public. We would only ask you let us know in what way we can help you. Brother Harold has chosen the hymn of invitation. If we could be of assistance to you in a public way, won't you let us know in what way that would be while together we stand and while we sing.